On this episode of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast, we look back on Maryland's weekend against Indiana as the Hoosiers came in and took two of three from the Terps and put up some offensive firepower in games two and three. Plus, we sit down with Terps outfielder Chris Aline to talk about his switch hitting, his move from the infield to the outfield, and his transition into being one of the best hitters on this Terps team this season. Plus, we have a chat with Stephen Cohn of the Champagne Room, who covers Illinois baseball, as we break down the Terps' upcoming road Big Ten series with the Illinois Fighting Illini. Here we go. This is the Maryland Baseball Network Podcast. Here's your host, Connor Newcomb. And welcome into episode number 63 of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. I'm your host, Connor Newcomb, joined by Zach Solon. And Zach, it's great to be talking about Maryland baseball again on the pod. And we obviously don't want to talk too much about what happened over the weekend, especially in games two and three against Indiana. We'll try to keep this as much as we can to talking game one and talking Illinois and talking to Chris Allen as we'll do later. But you have to bring up how the end of the weekend transpired. Yeah, Connor. I mean, the weekend started out great. Hunter Parsons had arguably one of his best starts of the entire season. I mean, eight innings, scoreless against an Indiana team that was 3-0 in conference play after sweeping a good Iowa team, and they've got themselves at the top of the Big Ten. Coming into this weekend, Maryland had won their, lost their last six at home, and then Hunter Parsons goes out, gives them a great start. They win 2 to nothing. Some stellar defense all around Randy Bednar. Had a great uh, play in the outfield. A.J. Lee, a couple good plays at shortstop. But then the pitching was great, and then the rest of the weekend, it just, uh, well, it just fell apart. Yeah, so we'll start with Friday night against the Indiana Hoosiers. Terps coming in and starting Big Ten play at the Bob against Indiana. And things started off very, very well. Hunter Parsons got the start, and he was magnificent. Set down all 12 batters he faced through four innings of work. Did give up a walk and a single in the fifth but was still scoreless, and, I mean, that was really the theme of that day. Eight scoreless innings for Hunter Parsons. He allows no runs on two hits, strikes out five, and walks two, and I think maybe for the first time this season did not hit a batter in a start as he went eight innings. Terps offense, it wasn't great, but it got the job done. In the fourth inning, the Terps took the lead after a Chris Aline leadoff triple. Randy Bednar couldn't get him in, but on a sack bunt from Taylor Wright on a safety squeeze, Aline scored to give the Terps a one nothing lead. Then in the sixth inning, it was again Aline who got things started. He got on with a single. Taylor Wright with a single got him around the bases. Then a Maxwell Costas walk, and with the bases loaded, Caleb Walls' sack fly made it 2-0 Terps. And although the Maryland offense didn't really come up big as far as getting big hits, scoring a lot of runs, two situations where they got a guy to third, needed to get him home, and even without the hit, they got him home in that game. That's right, Connor. You've got to play small ball a little bit, get those sacrifice hits. I know you're not a big fan of the bunt, but Taylor Wright's worked on Friday night to get Maryland that second run, which could have ended up being a big difference maker in that game. And they, like we saw, they only won two to nothing. And then another sack fly was just really what did the job. And uh, the bats weren't going. They still are struggling to get those really big hits in clutch moments. And then the rest of the weekend, they fell too far behind to really make any sort of comeback pretty much past the fifth inning in either day. But 
You know, we saw Friday night that the Terps are capable of getting some wins against good teams in the Big Ten, but they've got to have everything going for them. Right, and they got that big win. Brought on John Murphy after eight scoreless from Hunter Parsons. Actually kind of a funny moment in the eighth inning of that game. Terps were up 2-0 in the top of the eighth. Hunter Parsons in that eighth inning struck out the first two batters, Scotty Bradley that he faced and Tyler Van Pelt. And then he walked Matt Gorski, and his pitch count was at 112. Rob Vaughn came out of the Terps dugout to have a chat with Hunter Parsons. However, as he was walking to the mound, he never gave the signal to the bullpen. Elliot Zollner and John Murphy were both warming in the Terps bullpen. And, well, Elliot Zollner, I guess, thought that he was getting the sign to come into the game. Now, there's some word that someone from the dugout may have told Elliot Zollner that he was coming into the game, but I don't want to throw that person under the bus. (laughs) So we'll just say there was some confusion from both sides. And Zollner actually opened the bullpen door, ran out, not even into foul territory. He was into fair territory running out onto the field before they started yelling at Elliot to get back into the bullpen because Rob Vaughn and Hunter Parsons talked. Hunter stayed in the game and got that final out. But that was just kind of a funny moment out there on the field. And it was good that it worked out that Hunter Parsons bared down and got that next hitter. Well, you know what, Connor, Rob Vaughn, I, I want to focus more on that conversation here before I get to Zolner's run-in. Was, it was like Hunter Parsons was pitching such a great game. And then he got the first two batters out of the eighth, like you said. And then he started to lose his command a little bit. And his pitch count was really, really getting up there. And you and I were both on the call for that game. And we were kind of saying how... You know, we, he might leave Parsons out there, and, and he did, because if, you let, you know, if you're the ace, you get some say in, in how long you're able to throw. And then it was probably batter to batter at that point for Parsons, but as soon as the conversation ended, he got the next batter. And that's why Rob Vaughn has so much trust in Hunter Parsons. He's probably one of the few pitchers on this team he's going to go out to the mound and pretty much say, state your case of why I should leave you out here and really hear him out. And that's what he did. And I think that's a big reason why the Terps were able to get out of that inning and get the win. Yeah, Hunter said he... Really didn't take that much convincing. He just said he was good, could get the batter, and he did get him. It was a ground out to short off the bat of Drew Ashley to end that eighth inning. John Murphy came in in the ninth. He did walk the leadoff batter, Matt Lloyd. Then after what could have been a double play off the bat of Ryan Feynman, Tommy Gardner fumbled the ball a little bit at second. They only got the one out. Murphy bears down, strikes out Elijah Dunham, swinging. Cole Barr, the Big Ten's home run leader, looking and gives the Terps a 2-0 win on Friday night. As with that W, they went to 13-11 and 11 and started Big Ten play 1-0. and 0. But flipping the script to Saturday, things got a little tough in that one. And things got tough early for Zach Thompson and the Terrapins. Thompson got the start for Maryland. First battery faced, Matt Gorski doubled. Then after he steals third, Drew Ashley singles him home. And then a Matt Lloyd two-run homer made it 3-0 Hoosiers before Thompson had gotten an out and... I mean, you can't really get in a worse scenario than that. Three batters, three runs, no outs on the board. That's a really tough break for Thompson. He had had a good start last week against Creighton, an even better start against ECU the weekend before that. But then this time, just the Hoosiers getting to him early. I think Indiana wanted to jump on those Maryland pitchers, catch their mistakes early because they failed to do that all on Friday. Then they just kept going. Yeah, and things continued. Thompson battled back, got a couple of strikeouts, but then hit a batter, allowed a single, walked a batter, and a balk allowed a fourth run to score in the inning. It was kind of a weird play where Thompson didn't step off the mound correctly, threw to Taylor Wright, who wasn't standing on third base, instead threw to him at at a position, not the bag. That's a balk, a run scored. Just a very weird first inning in that game. Chris Alleen responded to lead it off for Maryland at the bottom of the first with a solo homer that made it 4-1. to But then another Matt Lloyd homer in the second 
Then in the third, it was a Grant Richardson homer. It was 6-1. to one. You still kind of feel like it's a game 6-1 to one through 3, but you need some offense. But then in the fourth, Zach Thompson came out in the fourth inning, did not record an out in that inning, and things went from bad to worse in the fourth. Seven runs were scored in that fourth inning by the Indiana offense, which just did not quit in that frame. And obviously, it gets to 13-1 to one and completely puts the game away in the fourth inning. That's a really tough spot to be in. No matter who you are on the Maryland roster, you could be a, a player, a hitter, you know, you can try and dig out of that hole. The philosophy is always, well, if they can do it, we can too. But Indiana's pitching was just so good. I think their starter on, on Friday night just ha had a bit of an off day considering how good he has been all year. And then coming to Saturday and Sunday, their pitchers were just shut down on the Maryland hitters. And then when by the time Maryland was able to get some offense, it was just, just too late. Yeah, and obviously the Terps got a little bit of offense in the ninth. They scored four runs in the ninth of that game, but Indiana's offense just was not done after they chased Zach Thompson. He goes three innings plus, gives up seven runs on eight hits, three Ks, a walk, and two hit batters. Daniel O'Connor came in, was not effective, gave up five runs over two-thirds of an inning. Billy Phillips, five runs over two-thirds of an inning. Indiana put up seven in the fourth, five more in the fifth inning, one in the seventh, one in the ninth. Mark DeLuya, I will give Mark DeLuya props in that Saturday game. He came in and allowed the rest of that bullpen to rest a little bit. Three and two-thirds from DeLuya out of the pen, allowing just the two runs. Settled that game down about as much as you can, and he helped the Terps going forward at least. But again, 20-5, to five, Terps got the four runs in the bottom of the ninth, but 20-5, to five, that's a hard game to respond from. And just seeing 20 on the board against your pitching staff is tough. Exactly, Connor, especially on a day when one of your best starters is going on for you. You've got Zach Thompson. He was only able to go three-plus, allowing all those runs. And then by the fourth inning, like you said, the game was, was pretty much decided at that point. And then, like you said, um, you know, every loss counts the same. You're, you know, you could give up 20 runs in a, in a game. That happens. That's just one loss in the loss column. But then you got to bounce back from that. And, and the Terps, we know, did not do a very good job doing that. But like you said, they'd exhausted a lot of their bullpen already. And then coming in on Sunday, you had Trevor Levante starting for you. And it was it was a... A bit of a tough start for him last week against Creighton. He got rocked a bit early, and then, again, just a tough start here. Yeah, I talked to Anthony Papio before Sunday's game. He said, you know, the guys that just put it behind on the 20 runs, they were ready to come win a series. And when you looked at it on paper, that's what they could have done. You put it away, and even though you lose 20-5, to five, you give up 20 runs, it's still a 1-1 series. You go out on a Sunday, and you try to win a series. But things just started to snowball on Maryland again. As you said, Trevor Levante got the start. Single to Gorski, a walk to Ashley to start that first inning, then an RBI single on a sack fly. Not the big hits early it was against Thompson, but it was 2-0 after the top of the first. Terps offense did the same thing. It was A.J. Lee leading off with a homer on the first pitch in the bottom of the first against Andrew Sawfrank. And instead of 4-1, to one, it was 2-1. to one. Felt like a closer game, but things got worse even earlier in Sunday's game. Coming back out in the second inning, Trevor Labonte allows four more runs in the second, a three-run home run from Drew Ashley. Back-to-back, -back, he went with Matt Lloyd, who had a solo shot that made it 6-1. to one. Then in the third, four more runs for Indiana, including a three-run double from Matt Lloyd that came off of Elliott Zollner after he had already relieved Trevor Labonte. Labonte, the freshman, goes just two and a third, gives up nine runs on seven hits, two Ks, and four walks. And He's been a little shaky the third time through the order maybe his last couple of starts, 
But this one was a completely different problem, it seemed. I mean, he had trouble getting anybody out, and obviously a start he's going to want to forget. Yeah, Connor, and Labonte is your Sunday starter, so you've got Parsons and Thompson. If both of those guys can give you a good six, seven, eight innings on Friday and Saturday each, you could save your bullpen a little bit, and then Labonte has some leeway. You can only go maybe two times through the order on Sunday, and then you can let your bullpen do some work, and then they'll have a couple days off before the midweek game. But given all the work that the bullpen had to do on Saturday, it was really up to Trevor Labonte to be on on Sunday, and he just couldn't do it. And then the Terps' bullpen after that was just a shaky as well, given how rocked they got the day before. It was 10-1. to 1. A Taylor Wright RBI double made it 10-2 to 2 through three innings. Terps did put up a zero in the fourth, but then in the fifth inning, five more runs for Indiana – that included a three-run shot from Scotty Bradley, and things were just spiraling out of control at that point for the Terps pitching a 15-2 game. Four more in the eighth from IU with another three-run homer, this one from Matt Lloyd. Terps got a run in the eighth and a run in the ninth. Really the only positive moment of those last couple of games was Josh McGuire. His first collegiate hit was a solo homer in the bottom of the ninth of that game, but the final score ends up 19-4 to in favor of Indiana as the Hoosiers take two of three in the series. And it's one thing to give up that many runs in one game, but when you give up 39 runs in two games, something the Terps haven't done since 2010, and that team was bad in 2010. That team was really, really bad in 2010 and 2011, the last couple of years that they were really getting beat up on in the ACC as Eric Backage took over and then started to get the program rolling in the right direction. But it's hard to respond from a couple of games like that. Yeah, especially when you have so much momentum after the Friday night win. You get the 2 nothing win over Indiana, who had been undefeated in Big Ten play. You start conference play 1-0, and and then Maryland just can't get it done. They give up so many runs. That's got to be a bit, you know, that's got to be crushing to them. And now they got their next two Big Ten series are both on the road in Illinois. So that's a tough road trip to make. And then a couple of uh, week, midweek road games as well this week against William & Mary. Then next week, two out-of-conference um, home games uh, in the midweek. But they are also against some tough opponents in William & Mary again and uh, West Virginia. Yeah, and those midweeks. Could be tough for Maryland, but it's going to be tough to play Illinois. And that team, although reeling a little bit, has been playing good baseball this year. They were ranked in the top 25 a couple of times this season. But the weekend, despite Friday, not a good one for Maryland. And it's so interesting to think about because you come out of the last two games, you give up 39 runs, and you think, how could that weekend be worse? Well, it could have been way worse. You could have gotten swept. You played a great baseball game Friday night. Hunter Parsons was incredible, and you did win a Big Ten game. Terps come out of the series 13-13, and 1-2 and in the Big Ten. They do have a midweek game against William & Mary this week and then three games at Illinois. But as we go back to the previous week with the three games, the two losses, there was no midweek last week. I know it's tough with the way it ended, but Zach, do you have a Terp of the Week to pick for this weekend? I am. I'm going to pick uh, Chris Aline, who uh, you interviewed on this podcast and he scored two runs, both of those, for the Terps on Friday night, which ended up being the deciding factor in that game. And he's been able to get himself on base. Now, on Sunday, he moved away from the leadoff spot, and I think that could be really good for him. So we know he started as the nine-hitter to start off the year. Once he moved up to the lead leadoff spot, he started hitting really hot on base percentage. Did go down a little bit, though. Maybe he you know, wanted to see some other hitters approach the uh, 
the pitchers first before he gets up there. So then uh, he did have a home run again on uh, on Saturday and then went down in the order on Sunday. And I think that would be a good spot for him because A.J. Lee, who I was also debating picking my Terp of the Week, he has been doing really, really well as of late. And I think he could be a really good piece for the Terps to have in that leadoff spot now. So Aline going down in the order, I think he could be a really consistent player around that 5-6 hole. Yeah, we'll see what Aline does and how he responds in the order he was dealing with a little bit of a hand injury on Sunday that wasn't allowing him to hit from the right side with quite the same amount of power, same amount of contact that he usually is able to hit as a switch hitter. So he felt only comfortable hitting from the left side. And because Indiana went with the lefty starter, Andrew Sawfrank, they dropped him down to six because he really hasn't faced a lefty lefty matchup for a long time in his baseball career. So despite his hot hitting, that's why they dropped him down. Um, and he did not have a hit in that Sunday game when he had to do that. But when he's got both sides of the plate going, he's a really good hitter. I'm going to have to go with the easy choice. My Terp of the Week is Hunter Parsons. I mean, he's the reason why the Terps got one game against the Hoosiers. Again, eight scoreless innings, two hits, five Ks, two walks on Friday night against IU in the Terps. Two-nothing win. I mean, he was dominant, set down the first 12 batters he faced, got some strikeouts at some key times, and just that whole scenario with Vaughn coming out, leaving him in the game, and him going right at Drew Ashley and getting that final out of the eighth inning was, I think, what makes Hunter Parsons so, so good, even with the pitch count well up over 100 at that point. And I know it might be the easy choice, the cop-out choice, but he was the best Terrapin this weekend against Indiana, so I'll have to go with Parsons. After you lose the two games uh, on Saturday and Sunday, the way Maryland lost them, you have to look to some silver linings. And I think Hunter Parsons was A-plus in his start on um, – on last Friday, I thought he could have been in the running for Big Ten Pitcher of the Week. Um, you know, shut down that Indiana lineup, had the defense behind him, and did an excellent job. And the Terps are going to hope he can do that in every game going forward because I think every single one of his starts from here on out is scheduled to be against a Big Ten team, which is going to be very important going forward. And Parsons had a great start. Chris Aline had a good weekend as well, and Aline is a good choice for your Terp of the Week. And speaking of Chris Aline, had a chance to sit down with the sophomore on this podcast to talk about him becoming a switch hitter and his transition from the infield to the outfield this season and picking up that starting role, becoming the leadoff man, and then what really helped him from his freshman to sophomore year to break out as a hitter overall and really flash some power this season as he's been such an important piece of this Maryland team this year. So here is my conversation with Terp sophomore center fielder Chris Aline. First pitch to Chris Aline. He lines that one to left field. Pretty deep. Balen Sparks goes back. Chris Aline, his first home run as a Terp. A two-run shot to left field. And Maryland leads it 5-0 as they welcome Sanger back to the mound against Maryland. So a lucky break for the Stetson second baseman, although he couldn't make the play. 1-0 to Aline, hits it high in the air to right field, chasing McNeil back to the track, still going back, looks up, it's gone! Chris Aline, a two-run homer, he's hit one from the right side, he's hit one from the left side, and the Terps lead it 8-4 in the eighth. And this week on the Maryland Baseball Network podcast, we are joined by Terps center fielder Chris Aline. And Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast this week for your first appearance on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. So obviously, you know, we'll get to you and your journey as a Terps so far. But here in, well, we're in Danville, Illinois, but eventually we'll be in Champaign to play the Fighting Illini this weekend. 
for three games, a very good Illinois team, and it's obviously been a little bit of a tough stretch for you guys, especially those last two games against Indiana. How do you guys put that behind you and try to get some Big Ten wins this weekend? Um, I think it's a lot of what we've been talking about, kind of just going back to us, not trying to do too much and trying to really like change the dynamic of our team according to the team we're playing. I think we just need to go back to what we do well, which we start out the season doing, which is just taking every day, day by day, and just doing what we do well and just excelling at that and um, kind of just working together with pitchers and hitters and doing that as a team, and I think we're going to be really dangerous when that happens. So for you, I want to go back to your high school days in the Philadelphia area. And what was your recruiting process like to Maryland? What other schools were you considering? And what ultimately made you choose to be a Terp? Um, so freshman year of high school, like a lot of my friends started getting recruited. My brother was also going through the recruiting process at this time. Um, so I was kind of getting familiar with it, but I wasn't really getting um, a lot of attention with that. Um it's like really, I was probably like five feet tall, so I was like people kind of just overlooked me. And after my sophomore year of high school in summer ball is kind of when I started um, to grow a little bit and kind of get a lot better. And I think Maryland was one of the first schools I talked to. I think Maryland and Penn State and maybe Cincinnati. Um, and then I can't even remember some of the other schools, but Maryland just really stuck out to stuck out to me. Um, after I talked to Bellinger, who is an old coach here, and Chef and um, Vaughn, just the way that they talked to me, like the stuff we talked about, um, they showed me on campus. Like something that was really cool was uh, Coach Vaughn's drove me around in his new truck instead of like one of those golf carts. So it was kind of cool. Like the coaches will like level with you. Like they're they were really real instead of just kind of telling you what you want to hear. They'll tell you what it's actually like and like what they expect out of you and like what you want to like expect out of them. And the conversation was just really real for me, so that's what, why I kind of chose to go here. Was there a defining moment where you kind of made that final decision as, like, I'm going to Maryland? Um, yeah, I think it's when we were in the office and we were kind of just talking about, like, the draft and college and stuff, and they were just giving me all these, like, pointers of basically, like, why they come to Maryland. That was the thing. And like all the reasons they gave me to come to Maryland – over other schools and stuff like that were just, they just really stuck out to me. And then the atmosphere with the guys, like Zach Jankarski was here, who's one of my brother's best friends. So I was like pretty familiar with the faces around here, just made it a really comfortable place for me to be. Um, and I didn't really see myself going anywhere else. So we'll get back to your brother, Craig, in a little bit. But so you get to Maryland last year and probably didn't play as much as you want. Made a few starts, got to play the outfield a little bit, the infield a little bit. Yeah. A lot of times you were a pinch runner in certain games, even late in games, but maybe didn't play as much as you wanted. So how did you keep yourself engaged, keep yourself locked in, and keep working last year, even though you knew you weren't going to get on the field a lot? Yeah, I think last year was just a really big – it's a growing experience, really. It's just a learning curve. Um, you come in as a freshman, everyone wants to start, everyone wants to play, but when you have 35 guys, you can't really play everyone. Um, but having a lot of seniors last year actually really helped. Um, it's probably better that I didn't play because I was not as good as I thought I was. And when you get to college, a lot of times you get the eye-opening experience. And having the seniors we had last year really helped me out, just kind of walking me through how the things are how things are supposed to be done. Um, and it was a good year to just like kind of still work hard and still work on my crap, but sit back and just like watch how things are done, and watch how leaders are how they lead and stuff like that. So I think, in terms of perspective, and just not even also baseball, just like living life and stuff like that, I learned a lot of stuff from how sitting back and watching the older guys kind of work. And now for you coming into Maryland, obviously you didn't get a lot of playing time, but it was somewhat assumed that you were an infielder. But 
obviously now that you've made it into the lineup, it's as the Terps center fielder. So what was that like last year? Were you already comfortable with the outfield? Was there a conversation with the coaches that they brought forth about moving you basically full-time to become an outfielder? Yeah, so I played infield my entire life. I played shortstop, I think, every game I've ever played baseball before I got to college. Never stepped foot in the outfield before. And one game later in the season, um, they just said, hey, we're going to stick you in left field. Just be athletic and see how it goes. And I would think it was like the first play, one of the first plays of the inning. Balls hit down the line, and it was like going to be a double. And I we backhanded it and just threw it to second and ended up throwing the guy out. And for me, that was kind of just like an eye-opening thing because I played shortstop my whole life, never really thought about playing anywhere else. But I was my viewpoint was if I can play outfield and get in the lineup, then I'll just do that. Um, and then from there, we never really talked much about it after that until the end of the season. They kind of said, we have like some openings in center field, like in the outfield, um, to see if you want to just do that. Like you can still work in field and outfield to start out, but – just see if we can just work that. And I ended up really liking it, and it worked with the lineup, so that's what we rolled with. And obviously you made a good play there, and you've made plenty of highlight reel plays in center so far this season. But, you know, what was going through that transition, like being a shortstop that wants to play short every single day and having to transition to a pretty different position? You're not just transitioning over to third or over to second. You're going into the outfield. How much work did that take to get comfortable in center field? Yeah, I mean, it took a lot of work just read it with, between reading fly balls, footwork stuff with Pap. Um, it was a lot of stuff after practice, a lot of stuff in the summer um, when I was playing summer ball here that I was trying to also work with while playing infield and summer ball, but trying to also do outfield stuff on my own at, on, on campus. Um, so it was a lot of extra work, a lot of watching video of big leaguers doing stuff then trying to implement that into what I'm doing just to try and um, better myself because you can't just – it takes a lot of work, and there wasn't enough time just in the designated time for practice to get where we needed to get. So it took a lot of extra work, a lot of extra time with Pab and Randy, who actually helped me out a lot too, um, to get where we are, and we still have a long way to go. So looking forward to that. And how much did it help to have an assistant coach like Pap, who not only played outfield here just a couple of years ago, but was one of the best outfielders that really Maryland's ever had, especially defensively? It's huge. I mean, especially because Pap will give up any time of his day to come help you he'll stay here until nine o'clock if you ask to if you need something so having pap uh here on the staff was really huge for me in terms of um, transitioning to the outfield and now randy got the start in center the first two games but it was a little bit of a struggle for him defensively since he shifted over to right though he's been great on defense it just yeah. seems like he's so comfortable in right field so you get that start in center field in game three of the season down in Coastal Carolina. Now, when you saw your name penciled in as the starting center fielder, at that point, did you feel comfortable in center field, or did it take you a couple of real games out there to really get your feet wet? Um, I felt pretty comfortable. That was the first real game I ever played out there. But I went through a lot of inner squads and stuff like that in the fall and center. So the, for me, I just tried not to let the moment get too big, just do what I was, I've been doing all fall, really just go and catch the ball, just kept it simple, go and catch the ball, hit the cut, and then work from there like if there's anything else I need to do I can do it but um when I saw my name in the lineup I just told myself not to do too much and just enjoy it and after spending a lot of last season on the bench and you spend the first two games of this year on the bench when you get that opportunity to get some starts in center field did you feel like you had to really make the most of that opportunity as much as you can as early as you could so you know this was your chance to 
maybe stick yourself into the starting lineup for yeah. good. Did you kind of feel that that was your chance? Last like, that was a lot my mindset last year. Like I got I get an opportunity here. Like I have to go four for four. Um, but like when you learn like that's not baseball is a tough game. Like every game you're not gonna go four for four, especially when you're not in the lineup every day. So kind of just doing something to contribute to help the team win, whether it's just getting a sack bunt down, like whether it's just hard running a hard ninety. Um, or hitting a sack fly, just trying to do something to impact the game was really my mentality um, and just have good quality at bat. So I wasn't trying to do too much, wasn't really focused on the results as much as just trying to help the team win and just do what I could. And as your at bat started to get better and better, Coach Vaughn moving you into the leadoff spot for the Terps, and that's where you've stuck since then. And now I know you said you hit leadoff in high school, so maybe unlike the center field transition, that was more of a comfortable spot for you. Yeah, the leadoff spot, I found myself a lot in high school. Um, I kind of went back between one and two, um, and like the, the approach for me really didn't it doesn't change as much. I like to swing, um, at hitable pitches. I don't really like to wait for deep in the count. So, um, that's just the approach I took in the leadoff spot. I know like some people like to take pitches and things like that, but I mean my job is to get on base, so I just try and give myself the best chance to do that. And obviously, everyone knows you're a switch hitter, so it gives the Terps some versatility at the top of the lineup as well. Now. At what point in your baseball career did you decide or did someone help you decide that you wanted to become a switch hitter? Um, since I can remember playing, um, I've always been a switch hitter. The thing for me was I just went through phases. When I was younger, I would feel really good lefty, so I would just stick with lefty. But I'd go, Or I'd feel really good righty, so I'd just stick with righty. And I would just go through phases, not really going back between the, both, between the two. Um, unless I started feeling uncomfortable in one. And then when I got to pro- about eighth grade is when I started actually switch hitting, going lefty and righty and righty on lefty. Um, and it was a struggle for me at first because as soon as I started struggling with one side, it was really tempting to just say, stick with the other side. Um, but my dad really talked me through it and was like, you need to, this is something that will help you um, and they will make you very versatile. So um, I kind of stuck with that and just grinded through that period. And as high school went on, I kind of got better as it got more feel for it as I went on and worked a lot with Soap last year to get where we are. And I assume you feel like that decision paid off to stick with the switch hitting. Yeah, of course. Love it. And so just one more thing on the switch hitting. You obviously dealing with a little bit of a hand injury right now or you were dealing with the past couple weeks. So you had to go lefty-lefty last week now. Had you gone lefty-lefty in the past when you were maybe only hitting left-handed or how how long has it been since you faced a left-handed pitcher from the left side? Um, it's probably been like 10 years, something like that. I haven't seen a curveball start from behind me since I don't even think I've ever – I don't even think kids threw curveballs back then. <laughs> so that was kind of tough. But, I mean, if I have to do it again, it's definitely something um, I can get better at and something that I can grow from um, and just learning how to deal with adversity really. And now, in your baseball career, obviously a big part of it is your baseball family, and not just you playing at the Division One level, but your brother Craig as well, a player for the Towson Tigers. And, of course, you guys got to play against each other last season as the Tigers came to Maryland, and Nick Dunn walked it off in that game against Towson. What was that experience like, getting to play against your brother in a D1 college game? That was probably the coolest experience of my life because um, I've always grew up watching my brother, him watching me. Um, but there's like that three-year age gap, so we never really played together or played against each other. Um, but even though I didn't play, it was really cool to see him play um, against me on the same field. It was really awesome. He actually did really well. I mean, glad to see that, but glad we won also. <laughs> um, 
But, yeah, it was really cool. It was probably one of the coolest experiences my whole family came to watch. So that was just a really a cool moment for me. And you mentioned earlier when we were talking about recruiting how he was going through that same recruiting process, you know, basically just a couple years before you and at some points at the same time as you were because you said it started pretty right. early in your high school career. So how did he help you through that process? And then how has he helped you just throughout your baseball life? He was a big help to me because when he first started going through the recruiting process, my dad wasn't really – familiar with the whole thing because he played football his whole life um so he was kind of like the test um so like he struggled with the recruiting process after high school he didn't really have a lot of um offers or anything like that so he went to do a post-grad year and then he started getting people to kind of look at him in schools to talk to him um but as i was going through it, he kind of talked me through the things that coaches are looking for um kind of like how to play the game the right way like how to lead because he's a big leader um, and he kind of just helped me mature early um, and become, like, the player I am. And with him having been through the D1 baseball grind, do you guys still talk a lot about baseball with you just being in your sophomore year here with the Terps? Yeah, I mean, he always likes to reminisce on his time playing, and he always likes to say that he's better than me, but we all know the truth. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we talk about baseball a lot, especially after, like, a game he'll text me or something and be like, good job here, or, you can do this better or something like that. I mean, especially when we're home, too, we like to throw and hit together um, and still do all that stuff together. Now, your season this year, you've been one of the best hitters in this Terps lineup, and I think people saw from where you were recruited coming to Maryland that you're a guy who could get on base in a lineup, be a leadoff hitter, get yourself on any way you can. I don't think something people saw was the power that you brought to this Terps lineup this year as well. Obviously, your big game, a home run from each side of the plate, against Stetson. Yeah. First of all, I want to talk about that. Had you done that in your baseball career before hitting a home run from each side of the plate in the same game? Um, I've never done that before. I, my, my first home run ever in, in my life came in high school, so I really hadn't had much experience hitting any home runs before um, high school, let alone both sides. And what was that experience like to have a game like that where you've kind of felt that, you know, this has all worked out being a switch hitter. I've come on a road game against a team that went to a super regional last year and hit one out from both sides of the plate. Yeah, that was a good feeling. Um kind of let's let you know that what you're doing, you're on the right path. I mean, definitely not where I want to be yet. Um but it was definitely like a good uh milestone, something cool to look back on one day and say, yeah, uh I hit a home run from both sides, but definitely something that I want to do more often, like just not just strive to hit homers, but strive to get on base more and stuff like that. Um yeah, it was definitely a cool moment for me. And now for you in this Terps lineup, hitting leadoff and playing center field, obviously you've made a lot of highlight reel plays. That play in Louisiana, I think, had to be the best one. Did you know you could catch that ball off the bat? Because you covered a lot of ground to get to that one. Yeah, um, I didn't really know what was going to happen when I was running after the ball. I was kind of just, I, I like to compete, so I was just going to run after it either way. Um, and as I started to get closer to it, I kind of just forgot about the wall and just kind of went after the ball. And I just stopped hearing things. Like, Randy was yelling at me, wall, wall, wall. I couldn't really hear anything. And I, all I know is I caught, like, I ran into the wall, fell down, and I didn't even think I caught the ball. I couldn't feel it in my glove. And Randy was like, did you catch it? And I was like, I don't know. And then I, like, looked at my glove and I caught it and showed <laughs> the umpire. So that was kind of a cool moment. Um and kind of fired my team up, which was cool to see after it was a long game. Everyone was kind of tired. And to get that, like, energy burst was really cool. Maybe that's something you don't think about. The one thing you don't have to worry about at shortstop 
is a wall behind you. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, but you offensively in this Terps lineup with you at the top is, you know, there anything you've had some success? Is there anything you do as a leadoff hitter, not just in approach, you're the first guy seeing a pitcher, but as in helping out your teammates after you come back to the dugout? Do you guys talk a lot about pitch sequence, what a guy is throwing, especially with you being the first guy to see him every game? Yeah, so we watch a lot of video, but it's also different when you face a team because you're a different team, so they're going to pitch you differently. Also, the umpire has a different zone, so kind of coming back and giving them the feedback on what this pitch is moving like. Um what count he threw me this, and what's a is his curveball? Is he spiking it? Is he leaving it up? Um, and if the, is the umpire giving a ball off the plate? Is he giving a ball in? Um, so I kind of just learn all I can from my first at bat and try and give that to the next guy, and we kind of just keep doing that for each other um, throughout the whole game. Because I mean, you can never know too much. You can never have too much information on what the pitcher is doing. Um, so we try and just help each other with that. Help each other out as much as we can. And with, obviously, the pitching having its struggles, but the offense going through a little bit of a rut right now, what do you guys need to do this weekend against the Illini, a good pitching staff, to get back on track? I think we just need to move our barrel more. I think we've gotten pretty um, – I think we just look for the right pitch a lot of times. I think we just need to start moving our barrels more because when we move barrels, we're a really dangerous offense. Like, if we start out early in the season, everyone's just juiced up to play. Everyone's excited to be there. And we're just swinging at hitable pitches, and good things happen when you swing. But when you're taking yourself into tough counts, that's when pitchers get really good at what they're doing. Um, and it's tough to hit that way. So I think if we can just start moving barrels more consistently as a team um, on the right pitches, I think we'll be really good. Yeah, the last thing i got to ask, as a leadoff hitting speedy shortstop in high school, did you ever think that in your second year of college you'd be a power-hitting starting center fielder? <laughs> uh, no, I did, <laughs> I did not think that I could – I dreamed of it, but never really thought it would happen. Um, but, I mean, hopefully the hard work is going to pay off, keep paying off, and uh, good things will keep happening. Well, thanks a lot, Chris, for joining us this week on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. So our thanks to Terp sophomore outfielder Chris Aline for Coming on this episode of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast, and Zach, Aline has been such somewhat of a surprise, but maybe the biggest addition to this Terps team, not that he was actually an addition, he was with the Terps his freshman year, but really didn't see the field much, but in addition to this lineup at least, he's been huge this season. Absolutely. I mean, you have one of the biggest pieces missing coming into this year for Maryland was who's going to play center field. Zach Jankarski's gone. So Chris Aline really stepped up to that position. He's played, I think, almost every game in center field. And then Maryland was even looking for a leadoff hitter. They had Caleb Balls in that spot to start the year. It wasn't going so good, so they decided to move Aline there. He hits three home runs in the series against uh, Stetson. Well, two home runs against Stetson. One more the next game against Delaware. And then really just building that on base percentage. This guy always finds a way on base. Had a huge triple off the wall on a Friday night. And he's just been, you know, swinging a hot bat, swinging a consistent bat. And that's what the Terps need at the top of their lineup. And the Terps hoping his hand injury is good to go and they'll have him back at the top of the lineup this weekend. When they go on the road to Champaign, Illinois, to take on the Illinois Fighting Illini, a three-game series Friday, Saturday, and Sunday this weekend as the Terps go on the road in Big Ten play for the first time this season at 1-2 and two in the conference after the series against Indiana. So for all that information 
On the Illinois Fighting Illini, we caught up with Stephen Cohn of the Champagne Room and BTN Student U as he covers the Fighting Illini and calls their baseball games on BTN Student U. And we chatted with him about what to expect from the Illini this weekend and what's been going on with one of the better offenses in the Big Ten. They're not like Indiana who hits all the homers, but Illinois, as we'll talk about in this conversation, has seven hitters hitting over 290 in the lineup. Just so much balance in that offense from top to bottom, and it's going to be a tough team for the Terps, who were ranked in the top 25 a couple of weeks ago, but have lost four in a row and have a couple of tough midweek games as well. So we'll get into all of that. Here is Stephen Cohn in our conversation about the Fighting Illini. So we thank Stephen Cohn of the Champagne Room for joining us to talk some Illini baseball. Stephen, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thank you. Uh, just, hey, it's, uh, you know, Big Ten season again, and Illinois is just trying to uh, get on the right foot going again. So we look at this Illini team, and this time last week, the Fighting Illini were the only Big Ten team ranked in the D1 Baseball Top 25 poll. They were ranked 25th, but after an 0-4 week, they drop out, and I want to start with that no Big Ten teams in the top 25 but Illinois in its first Big Ten series gets swept by Iowa what really went on in Iowa City this weekend that didn't allow the Illini to pick up at least one W yeah well this time last week it looked like Illinois would be a lock for an NCAA tournament and now and now I'm like thinking like that might not be the case as much no in Iowa uh going even back to Indiana State it has been about the defense really not coming like they haven't scored that much they've scored only one run three of their last four games but going back to like last tuesday against indiana state they had three errors i think they had a handful of errors over the weekends uh it's just a lot of unearned runs right now and they're just really coming back to bite them and that's just been the main issue like they the offense comes and goes the pitching comes and goes but the defense has just been a huge struggle uh so far this season and that's why they suddenly sit at 17 and 8 when this could have been a team that was 21 and 4 at this point as you said, 17-8 and eight and the Illini 0-3 in the Big Ten as they fall out of the top 25 this week. And they have the Terps at home this weekend. But before that, this is one of the tougher and bigger <laughs> midweek matchups you can get. A team that Maryland has seen this year lost to Coastal Carolina in the second game of the season. Illinois has not won but two games against Coastal Carolina this week. And I think what's really interesting, especially from a Maryland perspective, how much, at least pitching-wise, do you think Illinois pushes in these games to get big RPI wins versus getting big conference wins over the weekend? Yeah, well, I haven't, I've been covering this team for three years now, and I don't remember a single time they had two midweek games non-conference like this, like in the middle of Big Ten schedule, in the Big Ten schedule. Basically, they were playing Friday, Saturday, Sunday this past weekend, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday. Like, that is, that's what? nine games nine games in about 11 days so i or 12 days so that is basically a major league like workload at that point like that's getting close to well you gotta have someone step up and i don't really know if dan hartlub head coach for Illinois, is really gonna handle that situation because the line i will talk about the pitching like they don't have that many great starters that can really go deep into games this season and i i think it's gonna be more of like uh like get a bunch of pitchers in there. Maybe no one goes more than like two innings, maybe at least one of these two games against the Chanticleers. Uh, because I don't think like it's something where you can like waste an ace like Ty Weber against Coastal Carolina when you need to win a Big Ten game this weekend. 
And it's so interesting because you look at this Coastal team and you talked about the difference in one week for Illinois. Last week you were saying, oh, this team's a lock for a regional. This team, you know, could mm -hmm. be in a situation to host a regional. They keep playing like this and then they lose four in a row. You get a chance against the 19th ranked Coastal Carolina, Chanticleer, Coastal Carolina Chanticleers in your home stadium to get some wins. But then you turn around and say, all right, if they were to throw Ty Weber against these guys, we don't have Ty mm -hmm. Weber for a Big Ten series this weekend. Yeah. So it's – I mean, it's a good spot for Illinois to pick up some big wins, but I feel like it puts the Illini in a really tough spot this week. Yeah, and it's like Illinois does play Coastal Carolina really well. They beat them, uh, I think, two years ago when they were the defending national champions. Uh, they've played them like every season the past four years. And I don't really know why that matchup keeps happening. I know Coastal Carolina is a good team. I don't know how they keep ending up in Illinois' radar, but it's it's going to be a tough balance for him because – you know, they, they're dealing with a few injuries, including Zach Taylor right now. So we'll see if he's able to come back, which would add a lot of depth to the outfield, at least. But I have honestly no idea how he's going to use the pitching staff because you've got a handful of guys that started games this year. But I don't know if you really trust uh, on Aiden Maldonado against the really against the good Maryland team uh, because you want to use him in the middle of the week. I like I'm not really sure where he's going to go with this. And it's a very odd situation that I haven't seen. Uh, in the past three seasons. And so maybe the pitching might be an issue, but if Illinois wants to pick up more than just the Big Ten wins this week and get those big RPI wins, maybe it falls on the offense. And we'll oh, yeah. go to that Illinois offense right now. And obviously last year the big bat in the middle of that lineup was Brent Spillane. And when the Illini came to College Park last year and the Illini took two out of three, the one surprising part of that series is Brent Spillane really wasn't a factor against the Terps offensively he only had two hits they both came in game one of that series actually suffered an injury in the Sunday game mm -hmm. but yeah. how has the Illini offense done post Bren Spillane era uh I think before the past four games this was a team that didn't really miss out on him that much because uh they're not hitting nearly as many home runs this year no one is more than three right now and that's three different guys Zach Taylor who's only played 13 games, Michael Massey, who's been stuck uh, basically as the DH most of the season because he's been dealing with some stuff, and Jack Yelwitz, who's having a nice bounce-back season in his senior year. Uh, but they all have three home runs. No one else is more than that. So I think this is actually a more well-rounded offense because last year you had a guy that was kind of the Adam Dunn type, the, the three uh, outcomes. He was a home run, he was a walk, or he was a strikeout. He had a bunch of doubles, but like other than that, he wasn't that much of a factor on offense, and he was kind of a black hole at some points. This year, no one's really striking out that much, uh, except for Brandon Comia, who's kind of been thrust into that second base role because of Michael Massey's injury. And it's a team that I think can just string together a lot of hits, but the past week, they haven't been able to do that as much. And there's no really answer for that, because this is a team that's very just well-rounded overall on offense, and they've just been going through a cold spell. And talking about that well-roundedness, seven players hitting over 290 in the Illini mm -hmm. offense right now. I mean, you flip the script to the Terp side, there is one Terp, Taylor Wright, right now, <laughs> hitting over 290. It's a completely different scenario. And you talked about Zach Taylor. He's hitting 400, though, only in 13 games, been struggling with some injury. But Michael Massey has obviously been a, a, a big guy for that lineup for a couple of years. But Seems like Grand Fan Scoy's having a really, really good season, and Kellen Sarver as well. These guys are really showing out this year in 2019. Yeah, Grand Fan Scoy, it's the second year after he transferred from Juco. And he last year, he wasn't that much of a threat on offense. This year, he's really stepped it up uh, at third base. And then Kellen Sarver is a freshman that I don't know if they expected this kind of performance from him, but he's been great so far. 
But my big one right there, Jack Alvis. He's paying 293. This is a guy that uh, was uh, all Big Ten first team preseason like last year, I think. And he's, had, he's been dealing with a bunch of injuries the past two years after an incredible freshman uh, season. And it's nice to see as a senior he's able to bounce back, uh, tied for the team lead at homers, 17 RBIs, which is second most on a team, and 293 average in 25 games. That's just that's what you needed to see, and that's what this team was probably missing last year when they came maybe one game away from the NCAA tournament. Uh, they were just missing that one more bat, and that was definitely Jack Yalowitz, and he's like filled it in this season. And now we turn to the pitching side of this Illini team, and as we've talked about, the pitching could be used a lot this week in two games with Coastal Carolina. But looking forward to the weekend, at least as far as last weekend goes, Andy Fisher was the Friday night starter. He started on Friday night last year against Maryland as well. Is that who will be in that Friday night role this weekend as well for the Illini? Yeah, that's what I would assume if he doesn't pitch the Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, I'd assume they'd go with Fisher, Weber, and then maybe Maldonado, who – uh, is he was drafted by the Brewers. Um, he decided to forego the MLB, though, because it was a pretty low round, and come to Illinois, and he has been pretty much lights out in 13 innings, only four in runs, a 2.77 ERA. Uh, the big guy there, like Andy Fisher's been solid. Ty Weber is probably a very different pitcher than the one you saw last season. Uh, he is just dominant now. It's not, it's not even like the same guy, almost. And talking about Ty Weber last season against the Terps he went five and a third in Illinois Sunday win over Maryland and gave up two runs but I mean a 1.87 ERA for him this season only the 20 strikeouts in 33 innings maybe not a strikeout guy but he's seemingly getting everybody out yeah the big thing that uh Dan Harlow and the pitching coach Drew Dickinson focused on with him was they put him in the bullpen at the start of the season that's why he has two uh, appearances that aren't starts and they basically said like you've got to earn that spot back because his control was just nowhere to be found. He was walking guys left and right. And he still has 14 walks and 33 innings, which you'd like to see the number go down a bit. But he is a guy now that he almost uh, had a shutout against Illinois State two weeks ago. He's a guy that can go deep in the ball games. He doesn't have overpowering stuff, but he lets it play the field. And he trusts the defense behind him. Probably not a great decision with the way they're playing right now. Uh, but if they can make some plays behind him, this is a guy that could go seven, eight shutout innings and be one of the Big Ten's top pitchers. And obviously Andy Fisher will pitch on Friday. We talked about he went eight innings against the Terps last year and gave up three runs. But he's had another solid season, 3.60 ERA, 42 Ks in 40 innings. And he's seemingly a guy that every team that's going to make a run, especially down late in the season, needs. A redshirt senior, a leader on mm-hmm. Friday nights who goes out there and eats up innings. Yeah, this is a guy that's definitely been there, and he's been dealing with some adversity this year, too. It still bothers him. Illinois played at Grand Canyon uh, back in late February, and he had a perfect game, you know, no-hitter going uh, into the eighth inning, and then Grand Canyon dropped down a bunt, you know, and that like, nobody that did not go over well with the team, the pitching coach and Fisher. And I feel like it's kind of a redemption thing for him. He played at Eastern Illinois. He's dealing with that. He's just on a mission right now to be this team's ace. And he has definitely been solid 3-1 and one overall. Uh, I don't blame anything on the pitchers so far. The pitchers, like Quinn and Sefcik, has not been the guy they thought they were going to get again. Uh, he was a solid starter last year. Quinn Snarskis as well. He has been absolutely awful. Um, he hasn't been starting as much lately, only 10 innings this season. But, you know, they have enough pitching there, I think, to make them competitive. It's just can the defense show up and can the offense get going again? And obviously the Terps are – 
going to maybe try to get to this Illinois bullpen, but when you get to the back end of the bullpen, I mean, Garrett Acton, he might be the best closer in the country right now. Oh, yeah. No, he is. Like, they have a great one-two punch right there in the bullpen. Garrett Acton, eight saves already, which it's, it's only April 2nd here when we're doing this. So that's that's a lot of saves at this point. Uh, he might surpass um, – uh, Joey Gerber, who set the program record uh, last season for saves, he might surpass that this season. Um, but the one guy that I think you really got to watch out for in this bullpen, Josh Harris. He's 25 years old, a former Marine. Uh, he was pitching at a community college. Has two years of eligibility left. They took him on. He's got a sleeve up and down his arm. You know, he just tatted up everywhere. And he is huge. Like, this guy, they didn't really know what they would get. He has been dominant 10Ks in, t- in six innings. Uh, only one earned run allowed, and he has been that eighth inning guy to set it up for Acton, and that has been an excellent one-two punch. And obviously this team will play games in Champaign for the first time in Big Ten play this year after getting swept at Iowa City, and yeah. it's cold in Champaign still, and uh, they've only played the six games there this season, but a perfect 6-0 and back at home, and it's probably nice for this team to get back home and play some Big Ten games. Yeah, no, that's not like the teams they played, Southern Illinois, Illinois State, those aren't powerhouses in the state by any means. Uh, so you, they definitely should have won all six, if not at least five of those. And so I think they're definitely happy with that. But the next five games against Coastal and Maryland, they got to find a way to win three or four of these because they can't go one and four and fall to a record that's like 18 and 12 because then they are firmly off the bubble. And I think it's going to be really tough to get back on there with all the Big Ten games coming up. Now, where do you see this team down the stretch? Obviously, you talked about maybe the mindset flips a little bit after an 0-4 week, but is this a team that after you know being somewhat close the last couple of seasons and not getting in is going to get back into the NCAA tournament this year? I think it's a team that's pretty much like pissed off in a way because uh, last year they were one of the first four teams out uh, by most of the bracketologists, and they thought they had just as good of a case as anyone to make the NCAA tournament, especially over Indiana, a team they beat, I think, three out of four times they played. That And Indiana got in, and they did, and Illinois made the Big Ten semifinals in the Big Ten tournament. This, this is a team that really thought they had a case to make the tournament, and they are just on a revenge tour as a team because they haven't made it in four years. Uh, I don't know. I just think like it's gonna, it has to start now again because – you can't let a four-game losing streak fall into eight out of ten because then you're only going to mid-April and you're just it's too much work to do. And the beginning of the season, the great beginning that they had, I think uh, doesn't mean that much at that point. And into Big Ten play, obviously the Illini looking for series wins. So for the Fighting Illini to take two of three or get the sweep this weekend against Maryland, what do you think is the one key thing that has to happen for the Illini ball club? Well, I think I play defense. Like just like no errors, just. Gotta, I think they need Michael Massey back at second base. I think he's starting it back in that routine. Uh, but I think also the one X factor is Zach Taylor. Is he back and healthy to play this week? It's been three, four weeks now since he's been in game action. He's missed 12 games. If they can get him back on the field, that is a huge bat there in the middle of the lineup. That's a great center fielder. That's a guy that played on Houston when they were the number one seed in the NCAA tournament a few years back. This is a this is a superstar at this level, and they definitely need him uh, to just provide some of that pop, provide that leadership, provide that defense. And if he's back, I think Maryland should watch out. Illinois could definitely win two out of three or all three. And obviously the Terps know what Zach Taylor can do. He had a grand slam against the Terps <laughs> last year in the Friday game when Illinois took two of three. And one last question, Stephen, I just got to ask you to confirm something. Yeah. Looking at the Illinois schedule right now, it says Sunday is Bark in the Park in Champaign. Can you confirm there will be dogs in the stadium? 
oh, there are always – there's probably going to be dogs, like, throwing out the first pitch or something. They, they had Spider-Man throw out the first pitch last year. I do want to make one more point, though, on a fun note. Uh, it was actually announced this morning that Illinois is going to start serving beer and alcohol at Illinois sporting events starting in the fall uh, at Memorial Stadium for football and the State Farm Center for basketball. But they're also going to start doing that at baseball games the rest of the season. This might, be, and they said though for the final three Big Ten series, Illinois has four Big Ten series left: uh, Maryland, Penn State, Indiana, and Purdue. So I think this might be the last baseball series ever at Illinois Field that does not have a beer served at the concession stand. Well, that might be a little disappointing for some, but I think the Bark <laughs> in the Park Sunday will no, that's definitely awesome make too. up no, for it. Uh, it's mom's weekend, so definitely a lot of moms and kids out there. <laughs> exactly. Steven, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us and talking a little bit of Illinois baseball. Thank you. So again, thanks to Stephen Cohn for joining us on this this week's episode of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. And Zach, I think the thing that sticks out of that entire conversation is the balance he talked about in the Illinois lineup. Seven hitters hitting over 290. That includes Zach Taylor, who's been out for a while with an injury. He could be back this weekend. We'll see if he's in the lineup for the Illini. But seven hitters over 290. If you look at the Terps, one hitter over 290. It's Taylor Wright. Seven in this Illinois lineup. I mean, that's so tough to just go down the lineup and keep having hitters who are having so much success. Absolutely. And Maryland has faced lineups like that. Even Indiana had a lot of really... Those hitters were more powerful, though. When you have hitters hitting around 290, not a lot of home runs, like you said. That just means they're going to consistently get on base. And we know Maryland starting pitchers don't really like working, especially when they have multiple runners on. So it's going to be really tough for Maryland this weekend. Their strategy has to be to just get every batter out as many as they can allow as few runners as possible because the defense might be able to make the plays but these Illinois hitters are going to find the gaps and that's how they find their ways on and the Illinois pitching it'll be Andy Fisher on Friday who the Terps saw he's the Grizzly veteran and he's having a very good season but then they'll see Ty Weber on Saturday who the Terps saw last year on Sunday in the three-game series in College Park when the Fighting Illini came in and took two of three from the Terps right around this time last year in that series at Maryland and you know, it was a tough series for the Terps as they lost two of three, and Weber was solid in that start. He wasn't great, but this year he's seemingly gotten so much better, and he kind of reminds me of Hunter Parsons, at least from last season. Parsons has struck out more batters this year, but Ty Weber this year in 33 innings has only 20 strikeouts, but has an ERA of 1.87 this year. So he's not getting the Ks. He's not going to blow stuff by you. It doesn't have the giant curveball that's going to strike everybody out. But it's just what Hunter Parsons did so well last year. All that weak contact gets you outs. And what it does even better than strikeouts sometimes gets you efficient outs, outs early in the count, keeps the pitch count down, and he can start to eat up innings. And that could be tough for the Terps because the Terps do have a lot of guys in this offense who are looking for that one pitch. And if they think they get it early, might be some situations where they're rolling over on some pitches against Weber. Maybe they try to make him work a little bit more than he has recently. Absolutely, and that's what Maryland's going to have to do. We saw in the Creighton series especially, not so much against Indiana, that when, the hit, when Maryland's hitters fell behind in 2-2, 3-2 counts, they really choked up on the bat, had a lot of defensive um, swings, and were able to foul a couple back. And, and that really is a struggle for pitchers because their pitch count gets up there especially when you're in a 3-2 count. You're just trying to throw one payoff pitch, but then you have to end up throwing two or three to a batter. That really, really can rock a pitcher. So if they can do that, getting to Weber on a 
you know, this weekend on Saturday, that's going to be a big, big momentum shift for Maryland. And remember, they're throwing Hunter Parsons on Friday. If he can have the start he had against Indiana, Maryland's going to win the first game of that series. And if they can get that momentum, they can keep building on it and not give up 39 runs on a Saturday and Sunday. And that could be very good for Maryland. Although there was a lot of good baseball talk in that conversation with Steven. The most important part of that, bark in the park on Sunday at Illinois Field against the Fighting Illini. Unfortunately, Zach, you will not be there for I'm bark so in the park. I'm so jealous. But <laughs> I will be there for bark in the park. And he did say there could be dogs throwing out the first pitch. But either way, that should make for a good scene at the ballpark. Does Maryland do a bark at the park at the Bob? I don't think that's on the schedule at the moment. We need to talk to people. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that needs to get done. I mean, we're bringing fearless idea, ideas here on the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. We need bark in the park. At the Bob. wonder who we need to talk to that. Jake Longnecker maybe of marketing. Josh know. Kaplan could potentially give us some ideas. Maybe Megan Kane, the director of baseball Let's operations. Let's just bring dogs to the – Yeah, what are they going to do, <laughs> stop us? Bark in the park, though, Sunday at Illinois. Three games this weekend. The Terps travel to Champaign. The Friday night game will be a 7 o'clock first pitch. Eastern wait. time? Yeah. Now check, that is a great – Wow. Wow. Zach Solon possibly with the save of the year right there. Chicago is, uh, but this is not near Chicago. Um, I believe Illinois is central time. See, people that just live on the East Coast their whole lives, like us, just have no idea about yeah. the other time zones. Especially mountain time. Yeah, what is mountain time? Why? why? So the, according to Terps Baseball website, it is a 7 p.m. first pitch on Friday night Eastern at Illinois. time. That's going to be Eastern time. 4 o'clock on Saturday and 2 o'clock on Sunday. Again, of course, with those three games, the pregame show starts 30 minutes before each game, so that's a 6.30 pregame on Friday, a 3.30 pregame on Saturday, and a 1.30 pregame on Sunday. If we are looking at Central Time, you will eventually find out that we were wrong, but we think we have the time zones correct in this one. And, of course, Sunday that game will be Bark in the Park. I'll be there with the Terps alongside Taylor Smythe. You can hear all three games right here on the Maryland Baseball Network. So that's it for this episode. We thank Stephen Cohn of the Champagne Room for coming on to talk Illinois baseball with us. Thank you to Terp sophomore center fielder Chris Aline for spending some time with us as well here on the podcast. So for my partner Zach Solon and our entire MBN crew, I'm Connor Newcomb saying thank you and so long as we sign off on episode number 63 here of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode and hope you tune in this weekend as the Terps have three huge Big Ten games in Champaign against the Illinois Fighting Illini.